Hello and welcome to another Salon exclusive, Lucky You. Because we want you to be the very first to hear about the books that we're most excited about, we're constantly talking to publishers and finding out what they're doing. And we were delighted when we found out um, that Owen Culfer was doing a book for grown-ups. I loved the Artemis Fowl books when I was a teenager and I was very disappointed um, when I finished them all. And now I don't have to wait anymore because High Fire is coming out soon. It is a joyous genre-bending story that's part thriller, part action movie and just a load of fun. It's about a dragon who drinks vodka and watches 1980s movies. He likes flash dance. He's been around for a long time. He's not massive, he's just a bit bigger than a bear. Um, and he's hiding out from the modern world on an island in a swamp when he is discovered by a troublemaking teenage boy. So that's High Fire. And here is Owen to tell us a bit more and share that exclusive reading with you. Hi. My name is Owen Colfer, and I'm thrilled and slightly nervous to be doing this reading exclusively for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon from my new book, High Fire. High Fire is about uh, the last dragon. And contrary to what you may have heard uh, from fiction and news outlets, dragons are not noble creatures. Well, maybe they were once upon a time, but this guy, the last dragon, uh, he likes to take it easy. He doesn't really have any ambitions beyond staying alive, watching cable TV, making a nice martini, uh, and just hanging out with the alligators in a Louisiana swamp. And this has been working very well for him for about 200 years, until he runs into a small boy called Squib Moreau, Everett being his given name, uh, who is a little bit of a tearaway and somehow worms his way into Highfire's affairs. Highfire doesn't go by the name Highfire anymore. He is just plain old Vern, uh, which is short for Wyvern. And things are going all very well for Vern until one day Squib explodes into his life. The piece I'm going to read for you today is taken from the very beginning, uh, where I will introduce Vern and Squib and maybe give you a little taste as to the tone uh, of this book. Vern did not trust humans was the long and short of it. Not a single one. He had known many in his life, even liked a few, but in the end, they all sold him out to the angry mob, which is why he was holed up in Honey Island Swamp out of harm's way. Vern liked the swamp okay, as much as he liked anything after all these years. God damn, so many years just stretching out behind him like bricks in that road old King Darius put down back in who gives a shit BC. Funny how things come back out of the blue, like that ancient Persian road. He couldn't remember last week and now he's flashing back a couple of thousand years, give or take. Vern had baked half those bricks his own self, back when he still did a little blue collar. Nearly wore out the internal combustion engine, Shed his skin two seasons early because of that bitch of a job. That and his diet. No one had a clue about nutrition in those days. Vern was mostly ketogenic now. High fat, low carbs, apart from his beloved breakfast cereals. Keto made perfect sense for a dragon, especially with his core temperature. Unfortunately, it meant the beer had to go, but he could buy on vodka. Absolute was his preferred brand, a little high in alcohol, but easiest on the system. And Waxman delivered it by the crate. 
So Vern tolerated the swamp. It wasn't exactly glorious, but these weren't exactly the glory days. Once upon a time, he had been Wyvern, Lord Highfire of the Highfire Eyrie, if you could believe that melodramatic bullshit name. Now he was king of jack shit in Mudsville, Louisiana. But he lived in worse places. The water was cool, and the alligators did what they were told, for the most part. If I tell you fuckers to dance, then you goddamn well better synchronize the hell out of a routine. Vern often told him in not so many words, and it was truly amazing what common gators could achieve with the right motivation. So he spent his days in the bayou, blending in with the locals, staying downwind of the swamp tours. Though there were days he longed to cut loose and barbecue a barge full of those snap-happy morons. But putting the heat on tourists would bring the heat on him. And Vern hadn't got to the age he was now by drawing attention to himself. Shining a spotlight on your own head was the behaviour of an idiot, in Vern's opinion. And his opinion was the only one that mattered, in his opinion. After all, Vern was the last of his kind, far as he knew. And if that was the case, then he owed it to his species to stay alive as long as possible. He also wasn't feeling suicidal just at the moment. He often did, but mindfulness helped with that. A guy had plenty of time to meditate floating around in the swamp's little feeder trips. Still, it got lonely being the last dragon. Vern could drink about 50% of the blues away, but there were always those nights with the full moon lighting up the cat's paws on the Pearl River when Vern thought about making a move on a female alligator. God knows they were lining up for a shot at the king. And once or twice he'd got as far as a little nuzzling on the mudflats, which was not a euphemism for anything. But it didn't feel right. Maybe the alligators were close enough to him on the DNA spectrum, but no matter how much vodka he consumed, Vern could not drink himself into believing that he wouldn't be taking advantage of a dumber species. Not to mention the fact that the gators had no personalities to speak of and were uglier than the ass end of a coyote. They were cold-blooded, he had a molten core. It was never going to work out. Vern spent his nights in a fishing shack on Boar Island, which had been abandoned sometime in the middle of the last century. The shack sat back from the shore on a little side bayou and was being slowly crushed by the curling fingers of a mangrove fist. But it would do for now. And Vern had it set up pretty nice with the generator and some of the basics. He had himself a little refrigerator to give his absolute chilling and a TV with a bunch of cable. Waxman up the bayou had set up a supply line to the outside world so Vern could keep himself occupied during his nocturnal hours. It was all about survival, and survival was all about profile, or the total lack of one, absolute zero. No credit cards or cell phone, no trips to Betty Bato, and no online presence. Vern had set himself up a social media account a while back, cobbled together a fake persona calling himself Draco Smog, which he thought was pretty cute. But then Facebook started adding location services and some Lord of the Rings fanatics began asking probing questions. So Vern shut it down. Lesson learned. From then on, he contented himself with reality shows and surfing the net. All the information Vern needed was out there. He just had to find it. But no one could find him ever. Because whenever humans found him, to paraphrase Maximus Decimus Meridius, hell was most definitely unleashed. And Vern carried hell around inside him so he could survive it. 
but the human who found him would not. Squib used to have a daddy, and back in those days, his daddy said things along the lines of, Don't you go sneaking dollars out of my pocket, Squib, or I'll tan your hide. And, You seen my beard, boy? You better not be sipping on my bud, Squib, or I'll tan your hide. Or, How come you ain't minding your business, Squib? You heard about the curious cat, right? That cat got its hide tanned and then some. It didn't take Squib long to figure out that Daddy's sayings usually ended up with someone's hide getting tanned, and generally that hide was his. Squib reckoned that it was probably mostly his own fault, as he did have a little trouble keeping his nose out of other people's business. It's a free country, he reasoned in his own defence, so everyone's business is my business. But then his daddy left on Squib's 13th birthday, as apparently buying an Optimus Prime for his kid was more responsibility than he cared for, and none of his talk mattered much anymore. And in actual fact, that daddy wasn't even Squib's real daddy, no matter how much Squib might have conned himself that he was. Waxman, who lived on a houseboat across the river, said that Squib's real daddy had found this world a bit too much for him, and this guy was just some freeloader who turned up when Squib wasn't much more than a rugrat and his sainted mother was a mess. This replacement papa was nothing but a goddamn fool who was always shooting his mouth off, as Waxman told it, prison jabber that he most likely picked up in Angola or some other state farm, judging by the ink crawling up out of the neck hole of his t-shirt. You and Elodie are better off without that no-account loser, he told Squib when the boy delivered his groceries. Most he can read is off cigarette cartons. Just taking advantage of your mama's kind nature is what he was doing. Mostly Waxman was full of bullshit swamp wisdom, but this time he hit the nail on the head, especially where Elodie was concerned. Squib's mama surely did have a kind nature, nursing folks like she did all hours for $2 above minimum wage, then coming home to his delinquent ass. Squib was overly familiar with that particular term, delinquent, being that it was read to him off a report card or charge sheet often enough. Sometimes he thought he should dial it down a notch, the bad boy act, for his mama's sake because he loved her so much that it made him furious at all the assholes who had broken her heart. His own original papa, who had checked himself out when he had folks who relied on him, and then fake daddy, who left when he had sucked Elodie's heart dry, like he was some kind of vampire, but with a taste for love instead of blood. So Squib tried to rein himself in, but it never took. Squib could allow that he missed having a daddy, even a fake one, so long as he kept that thought inside his own head. Even if that daddy did drink beer like was keeping him alive instead of the opposite. Even if he did raid Mama's coffee can for change and spend it on lottery scratch tickets. Even if he did swing for Squib whenever he had a drunk on. Squib reckoned he'd loved his daddy a little anyways. A person can't help loving their kin, but that didn't mean he couldn't hate him too. And when fake daddy left his mama, L.O.D. with nothing more than an empty coffee can and a string of gambling notes running all the way down to New Orleans, which, turned out, the holders had zero problem transferring to his common-law wife. Squib hated his fake daddy with a laser intensity that was pretty focused for a boy without even a scrap of fuzz on his chin. And now, two years later, Squib hadn't seen much improvement in the fuzz department, but he was half a foot taller and working on a scrappy attitude that had him on the cops' radar even at the age of 15. 
There was a constable by the name of Regent's Hook who got shot down by Squibb's mama in the Pearl Bar and Grill one time in front of a packed house. And ever since that night, Hook had himself a hard-on for Squibb and made sure to take any complaint against the miner real personal. It seemed to Squibb that every time he farted, old Regents would be knocking on the door, offering to forget all about it for a little consideration from Squibb's mama. Goddamn Hook, Squibb thought. He ain't gonna back off till someone gets fucked. Matter of fact, it had been Regents Hook who bestowed the nom de crime Squibb upon Squibb, whose given name was Everett Moreau. As Hook had commented Squibb's first time in the station, Moreau, like the doctor with the island of freaks, right kid? Except you're one of them freaks, not the doctor. The nickname incident was back when Squibb's fake daddy was still bunking in the Moreau shack and young Everett went out on the lake one night fixing to dynamite a few catfish with a boomstick he bought off a kid in school whose papa had a strong box. No catfish were harmed in the experiment as Everett had succeeded only in blowing off both the little finger of his left hand and the stern of a canoe he'd borrowed for the job. Regent's Hook had been waiting when the patched up boy hampered by overkill manacles was brought into the station. I hear that weren't much of an explosion, boy, he'd said. More of a damp squib. And there it was. Everett Moreau came away from that night with nine fingers and a nickname. So, when the time came for Regent's Hook to retake against Squib on account of his humiliation, they were already acquainted. And Squib wasn't hard to recognise with his hands over his head. Behold, Squib Moreau at 15, a swamp-wild, street-smart, dark-eyed, Cajun-blood tearaway with a mama driven to near despair and no future to speak of unless he wanted to work creosote or hump bricks in Slidell. Long on dreams, short of plans most of the time, but he was doing his best to stay straight. But it seemed like straight didn't pay the bills, even with his own three jobs and his mama's shifts at the Petit Bateau Clinic in Slidell Memorial. But change was a-coming, for Squibb had been presented an opportunity. And this summer evening, with the blood-sucking gauze of mosquitoes hovering above the swamp murk and the cypress trees standing sentry on the shores of Honey Island, Squibb would be shaken on a deal to buy himself and his mother a little wiggle room from the attentions of Regent's Hook, who was escalating his courtship of Elodie Moreau. Felt like hardly a day went by when he didn't make time to swing by the Moreau landing with some bullshit excuse for being in the ass end of a dirt lane. Noise complaint, truancy office, disturbing the peace. Jaywalking, for Christ's sake. Whatever shit he could dredge up, Owls with a bottle of sparkling wine packed in ice blue packs in his Chevy's cooler. Blush, Mama's favourite. And it was only going to be a matter of time before Regents got a foot in the door. And then the only thing standing in his way was a fly screen. And you didn't put a halt to the gallop of a man like Hook with a fly screen. Squibb knew that his mother hadn't warmed to the constable, not nowhere near it, but nights are long in the bayou, and with Regents Hook pissing all over the boundary, the other dogs were staying the hell away. So that was the brilliant Owen Colfer reading exclusively for you, lucky, lucky you. High Fire is published by Joe Fletcher Books and is available to buy now from all good bookshops. And you know how much we love an indie, so try and find your favourite indie and order it from there. It's also being developed into a film, but that's no excuse not to read and enjoy the book first. We will be back soon with more Salon exclusives. <laughs>